Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts, practitioners and commentators to have a yak with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. Today I'm joined by one of my colleagues here at Tax Banter, Leanne Saunders, who is a senior tax trainer based in Brisbane. Leanne has over 25 years of experience in the tax profession. Prior to becoming a tax trainer, Leanne was a specialist tax consultant, providing advice to a diverse range of clients on a wide variety of tax issues. She commenced her career in the Big Four environment in Sydney before moving to the Gold Coast, where she managed the tax consulting division of a large second tier firm. Leanne has a master's in taxation and a diploma in financial studies and is a chartered tax advisor of the Tax Institute. Leanne, welcome to TaxYak. Thank you, Robin. Great to have you here, particularly out down in Melbourne, and you have picked a chilly week to come down yes. here. Yes. <laughs> All right, so today Leanne and I are going to discuss the issues affecting regional practitioners. Why are we having a conversation about this? Because we felt this is a huge segment of the accounting population. We wanted to recognise the issues that are faced by regional practitioners and not just tax issues. I think there's often an assumption or a a perception that the conversations about tax are often geared towards city-based or urban-based accountants and the options and availability of resources, and, and we'll talk about all of that. We also wanted to acknowledge the contribution that regional practitioners make to the profession. Um, there's an enormous amount of work and, and they often do it pretty hard um, along with their clients in these drought-affected areas. That's right. So what we're going to cover are some of the unique issues that they confront. And throughout this conversation, we are mindful that we have both city-based, urban-based accountants as well as regional practitioners. So for those of you who are regional practitioners, you will nod your heads in furious agreement, you will understand the issues we're coming across and you will deal with many of these issues every day. On a day-to-day basis, absolutely. The city-based or urban-based accountants, for those of you that don't deal with these issues, maybe this is an awareness and Mm. we'll introduce you to some of the things that you do have to confront when you're a regional practitioner. So what we will start with is running through briefly, because gosh, there are a lot of provisions here that actually affect regional accountants, aren't there? We could be here for hours talking about the unique tax implications for regional practitioners and the deal, the things that they deal with on a day-to-day basis. Now, I've brought you in because you travel a lot, as we often do as trainers, but you've had a particularly uh, large exposure to regional Queensland to regional in your practices. travels. Absolutely, yes. So yes. what do you generally see when you're out and about? Well, um, I see, uh, from a tax perspective, um, a lot of issues in the primary production area. Uh, a lot of our tax rules, regulations, um, take into account the unique nature of primary production because it can be weather impacted, it can be uh, uh, economically impacted. There are so many factors that uh, impact primary production. and More um, so than perhaps other industries? More so than other industries because of course everyone deals with you know imports, exports, uh, and economic and changes. Exchange, exchange rates and all of those things. Primary producers have all of that but they also have the uniqueness of Australia's weather conditions. They can be in drought, they can have flood affected uh, uh, situations. The drought, flood and rains. Absolutely. And bushfires, of course. And bushfires as well. So um, so things like the income averaging provisions allow a primary producer to average their income over a five-year period to mitigate from the effect of tax changes uh, across year, 
as in the, the level of tax payable across different years. Some years they'll be very profitable. They have great crop production. Other years, not so good. Um, Is it fair to say that when a farmer does well, they do very well? And when they do poorly, they, they do pretty really, really hard. They do it really hard. Yeah, that's right. So, so to have um, uh, to have the ability within our tax rules to uh, be able to even out those uh, tax impacts and the cash flow impacts. Uh, farm management deposits are another tool that primary producers can use to uh, mitigate the effect of changing income levels. Make a, make a farm management deposit, you get a tax deduction in the year it's made, and then when you pull the money out, it's assessable. As long as you hold on to it for more than 12 months in the FMD, then it helps to mitigate the cash flow as well as the overall tax implications. So you're really just parking pre-tax dollars Correct. out of the system Correct. until it comes back into your tax return in a when later you need year. It. When you need it, that's right. Do you have a view on whether the income averaging rules work or should they be improved or are they too narrowly focused at the moment? I think one of the problems for both uh, FMDs and uh, income averaging is that they can only be used by individuals. If the business is being carried on in a company, there is no access to either of those concessions. Beneficiaries of trust, if they're individuals, can use them. But again, it's the business that has the changing um, the changing parameters. It's not the individual. So I think that the concessions should be extended to the business rather than to the individuals. Now that would be a policy change, of course. That would which... be a, uh, quite a significant policy yep. change. All right. What about um, one of the fundamental rulings, TR 9711, we quote it regularly as trainers, when is an individual carrying on a business of primary production? And yes. it's become one of those hallmark rulings that we use right throughout the tax Absolutely. system. It's not only applicable to primary producers, it's across the board. When do you carry on a business? And of course, that ruling takes you through all of the normal hallmarks, repetition, regularity, profit-making purpose, carrying out your activities in a business-like manner, all of the things that you would expect to see with somebody that is carrying on a business. Well, the ruling's now 22 years old and it hasn't particularly been updated over the years. Correct. So it's one of those um, yeah. very significant and, and long-standing rulings. Capital allowances. There are a range of provisions specifically available to primary producers, and I'm referring to 40F and 40G. Yeah. Can you give a quick overview of what we see within each of those provisions and yeah. how do they differ? And again, from a from a policy perspective, this is important. Things like immediate tax deductibility for expenditure on water facilities. You're talking dams and tanks and bores. Um, uh, uh, immediate deductibility for fencing construction and assets. And finally, immediate deductibility, only since the 19th of August last year, um, but immediate deductibility for expenditure on fodder storage assets. Now just so we're clear, because when I speak to the groups that I go and visit in regional New South Wales, we all understand what fodder storage assets are. I walk into a city-based firm and say, do you know what fodder storage is? And they go, well, what? No, so no. fodder just means food storage. Food, food for livestock. And so a fodder storage asset is a, a hay shed, a grain silo, something that stores food for the farmers' livestock. Um, and recognising that, uh, recognizing that, um, that, that these are essential to businesses' primary production and things like your water sources, um, they're there for hard times. They're there to store water. Your fodder storage assets are there to store food for the event that there is a drought and that there's no food, there's no water. So. Hence the reason why subdivision 40F 
tells us that those things are immediately deductible to primary producers. Now, the provisions only apply if the taxpayer themselves incurs the expenditure. So if I Correct. buy a farm Correct. and those assets are already on it, yes. I can't allocate part of the purchase price to those assets and then get immediate write-offs for them. No, not unless the previous person was not entitled to a deduction, which normally, of course, the previous owner, if they spent the money on the asset, they would have been entitled, even had they not claimed, they would have been entitled to claim a deduction. So then it's not it's not uh, available to the next owner. If I think in recent years, we've seen quite a shortening or even removal altogether of effective lives. So mm. in the past, we had 50-year mm. effective lives for some assets, or mm. we had 15 years or three years or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, many of these have now come down to immediate deductibility. Immediate, yeah. So do you see this as acknowledgement by the government that in order to sustain these businesses, they've got to provide deductions for expenditure in the year that it's spent as opposed to spreading this over time? Yes, yeah, the effective life of the asset might be 50 years, but the reality is you spend the money in one year and then that will um, that will secure better profitability for your business for all 50 years to come. So it makes sense that in the year that you actually spend the money, you should be entitled to the deduction. Look, drought is something that continues to plague significant parts of Australia and often in the city we're a bit removed from it and mm. we don't see what's going on. Mm. Um, there's a very technical way of determining whether an area is eligible for drought relief Correct. and then there's a government declaration made. Um, but certainly when I've travelled up to Tamworth um, and I also go to Bathurst regularly, but if I think Tamworth, I've been going there for over 15 years and over the years, at different times of the year, it'll sometimes be yellow or brown. brown. You might get a touch of green. <laughs> yes. It's usually brown again. Yes. And you get a sense of an area when you fly into it. Yes. But I remember last time I was up, uh, I looked around and I walked into these sessions in both Bathurst and Tamworth and said, oh, it's not looking too bad out there at the moment. Mm. And it's they both just said, the surface. it's called green drought. And I hadn't heard of that expression before, but green drought is where you get a, a touch of rain, it makes the nature strips come back, everything starts to look a little bit rosy, but it's only surface deep. And if you go beneath the surface, you've still got incredibly dry ground. That's right, which if you're trying to grow crops... Very difficult. Yeah. More measures, things like livestock. Now, there's a term called natural increase. Mm. Can you explain what that means? Well, natural increase is normally when you run a business, you purchase your trading stock. With natural increase, you have livestock... You don't need to purchase Rabbits. new livestock. <laughs> Correct. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna give you the ABCs of, of that. But <laughs> that's natural increase. Um, and and so there's a, a different mechanism for accounting for trading stock than what you would see in a traditional. So you would have obviously business. your sales and your purchases. Um, it would depend if you're in the business of selling livestock Correct. or using or, it or to using produce it to, to, yeah. products, yeah. such as yeah, your beef or your dairy. Yeah. Um, but obviously there's another way that stock can come into fruition. Correct. Yes. Correct. <laughs> Putting it delicately. Um, insurance for loss of livestock. So how does this work? Um, well, in, uh, insurance for loss of livestock is um, if you've been able to claim deductions for the cost of livestock, then you're going to have an accessible recruitment. From the, uh, from if you make a claim on the policy, you make a claim on the policy. Yep. Um, so it's going to depend on again how you hold that trading stock, whether you hold your uh, uh, livestock as trading stock or whether you're holding it for breeding purposes or for some other purpose. Now this next one, I'm not sure that you see too much of this in Queensland. It's probably a bit warm. No, we don't do much wool clipping in Queensland. No, I didn't think so. But um, certainly in Victoria, and if we go down to the Western Districts area, um, there's obviously a lot of sheep, and New Zealand would have the same. Um, a double wool clip. So mm -hmm. when you're shearing sheep, there would be, of course, accessible income that comes from shearing. 
depending on the season and how fast wool grows and what's going on, you mm. might actually have two, two in one wool year. clips in one year. Mm. And this basically allows you to spread this over two over years. Over two years, correct. So yeah. it's a bit of a, it, it's it, it's a smaller income averaging. Like a variation yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. Just to throw something else in, main residence exemption. Mm. Not specific to primary producers, but in urban dwelling, you don't often get over the two hectare rule. Mm, whereas you regularly get over two hectares. For... So, again, how would this work? If I've got um, 10 or 20 or 3,000 hectares of land, but my farmhouse is on a part of it and then I sell it, I'm still entitled to the main residence exemption. But, but only for a maximum of two hectares of land and only if that land is used in relation to your private use of your residence. So you don't automatically get two hectares. Don't automatically get two hectares. There's something a I find is a misconception that that's the case, but it's not the case at all. And the two hectares doesn't need to be literally the area around the house. It could be a smaller no. area and it could be another Correct. hectare somewhere else that's Correct. used privately. Correct. Correct. Okay. The distributions out of trusts and partnerships, we've got some special labels on the tax returns and I'm sure Everyone will have seen these at some point, but not that many would actually fill them in necessarily. Correct. So we've got yeah. the primary production, primary production and non-primary non production labels. Production. Yeah. So, well, primary production is your income from farming activity. Your non-primary production is basically anything that is not... It, it could be that, you've, uh, uh, that, that you receive uh, adjustment because part of your farmland is rented to another farmer for their livestock um, so that's not income from primary production and this then allows of course things like the averaging rules to be applied correct, correct. Yep. absolutely non-commercial loss rules so just a reminder to everyone that's only when an individual makes a loss it doesn't apply to any other type of entity but there are a couple of ways where if a loss is being made in a business and you may not pass one of the other tests, like the $20,000 accessible income test or the $100,000 other assets other test. Assets, yep. What are some other ways that particularly those in primary production could benefit from the provisions? Well, uh, first of all, I would say most of the time, primary producers would pass the $500,000 worth of real property assets test. However, that may not be enough to give them access to their losses. Or they might have a smaller farm. Or they may have a smaller farm and not pass that test. So, um, the, the, of course, we have the uh, uh, overarching test for all uh, taxpayers that uh, adjusted taxable income needs to be lower than 250000 That uh, That rule was introduced back in 2009, ironically, to deal with what we in Sydney at the time called Pitt Street Farmers. Well, the Melbourne equivalent is the Collins Street Farmer. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and Brisbane would be what your Eagle Street farmer, Queen Street, Queen farmer. Street. Okay, got that one wrong. <laughs> um, so these are these are high net worth individuals that earn significant amounts of uh, uh, accessible income and might go and buy a hobby farm, macadamias, avocados, mm, that's almonds, right. and of course use the uh, uh, def uh, utilize the losses from that activity to offset their employment income from elsewhere. So uh, a decision was made. Um, that if adjusted taxable income is more than $250,000, you can pass all four of the non-commercial loss tests. You could have profits in three out of the previous five years, accessible income more than $20,000, land more than $500,000, and other assets more than $100,000. does not matter. You can't get your losses. Um, so those rules do apply to primary producers. But the unique thing about primary producers is that they have this allowance that you can earn up to $40,000 of non-farm income and still access 
your uh, losses from your primary produ production business. Again, assuming that it is, of course, being carried on as an individual, either alone or in partnership. There are also, there's also the ability for primary producers to apply for commissioner's discretion, whereby perhaps you have historically met one of the four tests and because of a year of drought, a year of flood, you can't meet any of the four tests, then you can apply for the commissioner's discretion to use your losses. You don't have to defer them if you get the commissioner's discretion. So that's one discretion that's available for primary producers. That's available for all businesses, not just primary producers. But the other one that's available that is particularly relevant to primary producers is lead time. If you can prove to the commissioner that within a commercially viable period of time for your industry that you will make a profit. So whether that be horse breeding or growing grapes or, growing, or yep, whatever. Trees are going to take 10 years before they make money. We've seen a lot of cases on we both have. the discretion and the lead time. So when I'm talking about the discretion, I mean the circumstances beyond your control, control discretion yeah. and then separately the lead time. Um, taxpayers have had mixed results with this in the courts Look, and tribunals. Yeah, it's... um. It's not a discretion that is easily exercised by the Commissioner. Um, and one of the things I think that um, that is unique to regional practitioners is that they're going to be spending the time with their clients to put together these applications. And it's really important that they understand when the Commissioner, the, the, the criteria upon which the Commissioner does exercise the discretion, and they make sure that the application that they do for their clients is going to give sufficient information to the Commissioner to allow him to analyse whether to exercise the discretion or not. I would suggest one of two approaches. Either they sit down and pour through the previous tribunal and court decisions to understand what worked or what didn't, mm. or what the Commissioner was focusing on or what seemed to appeal to him, appeal to him. or you go and seek some they professionalist advice. tax advice. Correct, yeah. correct, absolutely. Because it's such a, a delicate area it's to a, get it, right. Yeah, yeah. The Small Business CGT concessions, now, gosh, we could speak for days and weeks about this. Um, mm. We shan't. But I thought there were some interesting aspects when it comes to particularly the regional practitioners and their clients. The $6 million maximum net asset value test. It can be very difficult to pass this test because of land values. Land value, of course. So what are you seeing out there when it comes to this issue? Well... Most of, the, most of the time, small business CGT concessions in the primary production contests would have to rely on the $2 million turnover. Because test. their assets are just, the, the property's assets worth are too just, much. Yeah, too, worth too much. Look, to relay some experience I've had with this, many years ago when I was um, training in Tamworth, I arrived for a session and we got into a really big discussion about coal seam gas companies. Mm. And... At the time, and to some extent this still happens a bit, but they were moving into these areas and making some very generous offers to the local properties owners. And so you'd have a, a farming property that might be worth a million dollars if I sell it to you as another farmer and you keep using it for a primary production yep. business. So no worries. You'd no worries. The, yep. Give me a million bucks. Yep. But the coal seam gas company would say, we think it's worth four million. Mm. Now, those figures were okay, assuming we haven't got more mm. than $2 million of other assets. Mm. But if the land's worth if three million... three and it goes to nine... We've got an issue. And I think it becomes a very interesting question. And, and the context in which this came up, you may recall, um, and we trained on this years ago, Leanne, remember the case called Citadel? Oh, yes, wonderful. That was the marina in yes. sun, on, on the Sunshine Coast. You're probably more familiar with the yes. location than I am. Yes, yes. But he was trying to argue his marina that he'd sold was only worth four and a half million. Four and a half mil, because that was previous offers. Which was, been, um, you know. at the time, the five mil yep. threshold. Yeah. He actually sold it for nine. about nine. 
and was trying to persuade the tribunal it wasn't worth nine. Mm. Um, and ultimately, they didn't arrive at what it was worth. They just said it mm. was worth more than five. Well, yeah, they did. They did actually accept. They acknowledged that it was probably not market value of that asset was not nine million. But what we had here was we had a syndicate of buyers that came together, pooled their money, had too much cash to splash around. We're not exactly and, informed buyers. No, and uh, and 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 wanted the asset quite desperately. So. Nine million it was, um, but the market value of an asset consistently, the commissioner has told us, the market value of an asset is what a willing but not desperate purchaser is willing to pay to a willing but not desperate buyer. Now, is the fact that the coal seam gas entity so desperate to get its hands on this land for its own profitability? Does that mean that the nine million that it might offer to a farmer is in excess of the land's market value. And even if they are willing, knowledgeable, but not anxious, is generally how I've referred mm-hmm. to it, mm-hmm. uh, what about the issue that commissioners always relied on the Spencer decision? Which, which is, is best and highest use of the asset. So if I sell it to you value. as a farmer, it's worth sure. three mil, but if I sell it to the coal seam gas company, it's worth nine. So what is the market value, even if I'm not selling it to the coal seam gas buyer? That's right. That's exactly right. And I think we're still in a bit of murkiness when it comes to this yeah. issue, but the dollars get bigger when it comes to farmland. That's exactly right. And that's mm. the problem. So I'm not sure we'll answer that one today. Mm. There are some proposed measures. This has all gone quiet, but we've had draft legislation released on the proposed measures to deny deductions for the cost of holding vacant land land, from 1 July this year. Mm. Now, with the election coming and going and we're still resurrecting measures from prior to the election, we're not sure where this one is at the moment. But the impact that this could have on land and I'm thinking adjustment in particular. Yes look um, one of the carve outs you will still be entitled to your deductions for holding costs if the land's vacant if the land is being used in carrying on a business in particular a primary production business. If I have land for adjustment Mm. and they're your animals but my land Mm. am I carrying on a business am I carrying on a primary production business I'm Mm. struggling with both of those. Well my favourite answer when anyone asks me is it depends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't help. <laughs> if all I am doing, if I own the land and all I am doing is renting it to you and you run the livestock and there's just a flat rental payment to me, I'm not carrying on a business of primary production, you are. However, if we have a share farming arrangement, I'm carrying on a primary production business because my revenue is dependent on your revenue and if I assist you in fattening the stock up and you get a better sale price and I profit from that, then even though I'm technically adjusting the land to you, it's for your uh, your use as a share farmer, I'm probably carrying on a primary production business. So it depends on the exact the circumstances of the of the uh, arrangement could you explain in more detail share farming because that's often again thrown about and, and city a, slickers may not understand that term well it's basically somebody's got land somebody else wants to farm on that land and they come to a mutual arrangement where they share the profitability of the would you call it a joint venture or more a proper partnership would generally be a partnership because they're sharing profit not sharing output okay fbt now, there's a whole series of provisions in the FBT Act that deal with not so much primary production specifically, but remote areas. Yeah, and, and this is across often the board, farming as will you be say, remote areas. It's, it's, it's not necessarily uh, unique to primary producers. Any business 
in a remote area could take advantage of the FBT concessions. So give me an example of how one of them works, the remote area exemption. So remote area exemption, there's uh, 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 multiple exemptions that are available. Um, If, for example, you set up a mine site in a remote area and you're flying the workers in and out, that is a remote area. Somewhere in the Pilbara, for example. For example, yes. Um, That is a remote area uh, airline transport fringe benefit exempt from FBT. And, of course, this came to light in the John Holland Holland, case. Because it was not remote. Well, let's work through that one briefly because that's good to look at from a regional Mm. perspective. Uh, The workers were based in Perth. They weren't coming in from the east coast. Correct. But they were flying up to Geraldton. Geraldton, which is not a remote area. And I've done a little bit of a Google hunt, and that's basically on the coast about halfway to Port Hedland. Correct, yeah. But it's not a remote area. No. So it doesn't qualify for the FBT exemption under remote area. Correct. Which is section 47. So they would need to rely on the otherwise deductible rule. That's right. And so that whole case got turned on its head and it became about had the workers paid for their transport up from Perth to Geraldton Geraldton, and back again. Would they have been entitled to a deduction? Correct. And that would have depended on whether they were travelling to work or travelling for work. And it was determined that because their contract said that they were employed from the time they arrived at Perth Airport, that they were travelling to Geraldton for work, not getting to work. And the number of factors in that, because they were being paid for the travel time, mm, they correct. were rostered on at that point, correct, correct. they were subject to disciplinary action. Absolutely, they were on the job, and so they couldn't get drunk in the, you well, know, you in the lounge and then get on the flight and go to work that day. You know? Maybe a few beers in the, the Qantas <laughs> Club, no, and no. then you show up at Geraldton and start operating some pretty serious machinery. machinery. <laughs> not a good look. No. So, yeah, yeah, for a number of reasons. Yes. And that was quite a, a, an important decision in it terms of... It was a landmark of... decision, absolutely, absolutely. Um, mm. on, uh, on, on the otherwise deductible rule and uh, in relation to work-related travel. But um, also FBT exemptions apply for accommodation in remote areas. So if you've got, and especially in the primary production context, you'll often have farmhands that need to be on site uh, 24 hours a day you know, for... Three shearers or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so if uh, if they're employees and they're provided with accommodation in a remote area, then that is exempt from FBT. Another one that could be relevant in these situations, there is an FBT exemption for the cost of relocating employees. Mm, absolutely. So I'm not thinking necessarily from capital city to capital city, but if I was transferred from my employer to another location, still working for them, and it is in a regional location, they can cover things like stamp duty. Absolutely. Your moving yes. costs, your storage yes. costs. That's right. And I think stamp duty is one of the most significant ones that people either don't realise is there or they just overlook it. Mm. And if you could pay for your stamp duty on a house on that a you house buy to live somewhere purchase. else Absolutely. at a pre-tax dollars. Absolutely. And um, as you say, it's that's not unique to primary producers. Um, and we will talk very shortly about some of the staffing issues that exist for regional practitioners in the accounting field. So this could be another incentive so to get be, them. This, this could be a, a mechanism to assist staff that want to go and work in regional areas. Good point. Zone tax offsets, and there is currently a review underway oh, by yes. the Board of Taxation on this. Because the zones were set back in the 1940s, and they may not be the same anymore. Well, some townships would have grown significantly since then. Correct. And others could well be ghost towns. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the basis on which they're classifying locations... Were, yeah, they need to be realigned. Mm. They need to be realigned. So there is a process of, of uh, that being uh, consulted on as we speak. 
GST free supply of farmland. Now, having spoken with our uh, consulting division in, in Webmartin Consulting, this comes across their desk a lot. All the time, yes. So can you explain briefly how the, the provisions apply to GST free farmland? So um, your farmland will be GST, a supply of farmland will be GST free if it uh, is, uh, if you're carrying on your farming business up until the date of the supply um, and the intention of the purchaser is to also carry on farming business, uh, then you can supply the land free of GST, which makes sense because the uh, the, the purchaser uh, would ordinarily be registered for GST. Um, they'd be able to claim an input tax credit for the GST that's remitted. So it just saves the cash flow from having to go out of the hands of the vendor, off to the ATO, only to be refunded to the purchaser. And that's just a timing difference, but it just becomes a, a permanent issue as in a permanent difference when you've got stamp duty because that's of course levied Correct. on the GST it's inclusive on the G- price. Yep. So you reduce the you reduce the, the, the price by the GST and you're saving the equivalent in stamp duty. Correct. Um, the other time when you'll have a GST free supply of farmland, and maybe this is not well known by um, you know the the city based uh, accountants, but you can also have a GST free supply of farmland if you supply the farmland for if you subdivide it and you supply that land for the purpose of um, building residential premises on the land for so basically taking relative. broad acre farmland and yes. then turning it into residential blocks. No, not not entirely. This is it remains farmland, but you might subdivide off a small portion of it for your son daughter, whoever's going to take over the farm from you, but they're now in their, used to be 20s, probably nowadays, kids stay at home till they're 40, um, so they're now in their 40s and they want to set up home for themselves, then you can actually carve off a bit of land and supply it GST free okay. to build the residence for the okay. next generation. Okay, but still got to be farmland in the, yep. in the future years. Correct. Okay. There was a huge political discussion that stretched for some 18 months when it came to the working holiday makers. What's the what? So particular visas, and the numbers Correct. do escape you. I think it's 317 and 362, something 362, like that. 362, yes, that sounds about right. I can't remember, but yes. Or, or um, 417, 362, whatever the numbers are. Um, and these are the two categories of visa where someone comes into Australia, they've got limitations on how much work they can do, but it is a combination holiday and working visa. Correct. And the problem that we historically had was you were either a resident for tax purposes and taxed on worldwide income, or you were a non-resident and only taxed on Australian sourced income. And for a lot of working holiday makers, they may not do enough in terms of connections with Australia and um, stability of location and move around from farm to farm or regional area to regional area it was also picking or doing what have you so they don't do enough to establish that they're a resident of Australia for tax purposes and they're subject to non-resident rates of tax which are quite harsh on every dollar that they earn. Also, there was a flip side to this where because of the 183 day rule, if they came into Australia for more than 183 days in a 12-month period, they were deemed to be a tax resident unless, unless they, they had, had a usual, usual abode place of abode outside. Hmm. The problem with that rule is many of them did have a usual place of abode because they came from their parents' home. Correct. I'm talking about the backpackers. Yeah. And that meant that they couldn't be residents. Now, That's they didn't right. have a lot of other worldwide income that was a problem or worldwide no. CGT issues. No, But they no. wanted the tax-free threshold in Australia and they yeah. weren't getting it as non-residents. That's exactly right. And, and from our perspective, you know, we... we, we um, working holiday makers 
do a lot of jobs that Australians don't want to do. And so it's very useful for us to give them those opportunities and there was a disincentive for them to come to Australia if they were going to pay exorbitant rates of tax on well, the income that they earned here. 32.5% losing a third of their income. Correct, correct. So where we've landed after, I won't go back through the history of what they were negotiating, but we've landed at a place where there's now a separate category of taxpayer. So we've got our residents. Yes. We've got our non-residents. And then in between? We've got our temporary residents. Yes. And then we've also got also our working, got our holiday, working makers. holiday makers. Yeah. So how are they treated by the employers? So uh, unlike, unlike a, a resident of Australia, um, they pay tax on effectively the first bit of income. The so first to dollar. 30, first dollar, yeah. Yep. Up to 37000 at 15% tax rates. And thereafter, they're on the same tax rates as residents of Australia. They also have this option to take with them the Departing Australia superannuation payment. but this That's worthwhile, not. Oh, gosh, I've done the numbers on this. If we're talking someone who is a working holiday maker, by definition, they are not allowed to work full time under the mm. conditions of their visa. Mm. So let's be generous and say they're earning 30000 in that year, but they're probably not. Yeah. If we then take, I'm going to round up to 10%. For SG, yep, but nine thousand off to off to super. Off goes to super. You lose fifteen percent on the way in. Yep. You then have a tax rate of sixty-six percent when you take it out. And I'll just repeat that for everyone. It's sixty-six percent tax rate. Um, we've actually done well because it was going to be ninety-five. It was going to be ninety-five. But I the know. Greens said that's not acceptable. I know. So two thirds of then what is left goes in tax. So if we're only talking three grand. And you've had some come out on assessment when the contribution was made. Mm. Then we're talking about maybe five hundred or eight hundred dollars. That's it. That's that all you can take have. with you. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, I, I, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of pushback to that measure, especially when the proposed rate was ninety five percent. And the feedback that I got from a lot of accountants was, why did they even bother? Let's just carve those employers out from having to make super contributions in the first place. The problem place. with doing that is if I've got a choice between someone who is a working holiday maker and, and someone, someone who's is, not a resident, then I'll take and the, I don't have to pay super for yeah, the, the working holiday maker, holiday and I do maker, have to pay super for then the Then I'll take the working holiday maker. And that was going to distort the mm, labour market. That's right, that's right. So they haven't carved employers out, but we've got this very convoluted mechanism. And if it's under $5,000, you can take it with you when you leave. When you leave if it's more if than 5000 yep. you need to wait until you get out and of the country before you can claim, claim it. Claim it, yeah. There's also a program called the Seasonal Labour Mobility Program. Uh, this is basically a program that allows people to employ overseas workers from particular countries in particular industries, and it's designed to support really Pacific island workers mm. so the countries that are eligible for this uh, as in the individuals from those countries is fiji kiribati nauru papua new guinea samoa solomon islands timor-leste tonga tuvalu and vanuatu so the duration would normally be uh, a maximum of nine months and they must spend three months out of every 12 in their home country. Mm. So it's a way of bringing in labour from these sorts of countries and you put them into agriculture, horticulture, cane, cotton, aquaculture or accommodation in certain locations. And it's a win-win because we, we, have, we have the labour and they, they can take the skills home for their purposes, yeah. And further to that, we've also got a lot of the conditions with these visas. If you spend something like three months working in certain designated postcodes, which again are going to be regional parts of Australia, they can get an additional 12 months on their visa. On their visa. And mm. they love doing this because right. if they can stay in Australia for two years instead of 12 months, 
um, it's also a win for us because we get these workers working mm. in regional parts of the country. Try. I also wanted to mention single touch payroll. So this is an area that I've been heavily involved in for three years with the ATO. But they've recently announced through a fact sheet called concessional reporting, which is one that deals with the quarterly reporting for micro employers, the one to four employees, and also the closely held payees. They've also announced as part of that seasonal employers. Mm. So if you employ, say, 10 or 15 shearers for three weeks a year, but the problem is that you wouldn't qualify as a micro-employer, so you wouldn't be able to use quarterly, quarterly. reporting, mm. you'd have to do payday reporting. Mm. And so they've set out guidance where, as a seasonal or an intermittent employer, who would be in excess of the four micro-limit, you'll be able to do quarterly still reporting be able as well. To quarterly report, yeah. Now, at this stage, you'll still have to apply for it year by year, um, but it will apply for a year at a time, and that is now available through the ATO website, mm. so through mm, the portal on ATO yeah. Online, which is really good. Some other commercial issues... Cash flow becomes crucial, as it is in any, any business, yeah, but, but you've again, got more volatility. The, the, the unique nature of primary production and the weather dependency of it um, means that, you know, you're going to have good years, bad years, and cash flow becomes absolute king. And again, you can, you can uh, for, for regional accountants, I think that that's a, uh, um, a, a huge value add to be able to... Um, assist primary producers in managing cash flow. Again, FMDs, income averaging provisions, etc. assist. But to be able to sit with your client and go into the nitty gritty of how much cash they need to live and how they're going to fund that. And further to that, structuring type issues? And structuring, absolutely. Oh, is there, structure is there what's a better going on? way to structure the, the, the operations to, to optimise cash flow? And then thinking that through, we're going to have also huge issues with succession. Uh, family businesses move from father to son or parents right. to daughter, whatever's That's going right. on. That's right. Um, there may be siblings now running the business that was previously run by their parents. Correct. And then do they get on? Do they not get on? How Correct. do you split up the assets? And, and generally, and I, this is very much a generalisation. Don't mean to offend anyone when I say this, but generally the farm goes to the eldest son and all the value, all the wealth is in the farm. So the So there could the be an imbalance in estate there, planning. There, there can be a massive imbalance in, in estate planning. So how do you deal with that? And that's a, 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 an issue that's um, unique, I think, to, uh, to primary producers. The Aussie dollar, just another commercial issue to think about. So a lot of yeah. these taxpayers are going to be exporters, whether it be wool or grain or beef or whatever. Yes. So when the dollar's fluctuating either in their favour or not, as yeah, the case may be, that's right. huge issues there. Well, it, it impacts cash flow, it impacts um, things like turnover, and as we said earlier, if you can't rely on the $6 million net asset value test, then if you're trying to sell in a year where you've got strong dollar values, your turnover could be over the $2 million mark, whereas in a... So the volume could be the same? The, the volume is the same, but the but the turnover number is uh, is different. So it has massive knock-on effect. Now, in all the reading I've been doing on regional practitioners, and this is prevalent in everything I look at, their biggest issue seems to be finding quality staff. What I will say before we make any further comments is I obviously speak to a lot of accounting firms right across the country, as do you. And when the regional accountants say to me, oh, look, we're looking for staff or do you know of anybody and we're finding it hard to locate someone... 
I don't know if it's any consolation, I'm not helping you find someone, but the city-based and urban-based firms are having the same challenges. Same issues. So Absolutely. this is actually a national shortage. It's not just a Correct. regional issue. Correct. Yeah. So where do you say the shortages are? What level? Um, look, I think that there needs to be more graduates coming out from our universities. And How do we make accounting sexy? That's right. That's right. Well, that's the eternal dilemma, isn't it? I think accounting sexy, but <laughs> I'm not normal. <laughs> what does that make me? <laughs> so, look, it's a serious issue because we've got a high proportion of our profession uh, over the age of 50. Mm. Um, a lot are going to be retiring in the next 5, 10, 15 years. We need to make sure we keep getting younger ones coming through. That's right. Um, I think offshoring is another interesting aspect to this, mm. where increasingly we're seeing firms, maybe not in the regions, we've been doing to know how many regional firms are using offshoring, mm. um, but certainly some of the city, uh, parts of Asia, for example, and the work's being done by employees of the firm over there Overseas, yeah. and then that's not necessarily training people up in Australia for the skills no, they that's need. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. Mm, it's interesting. Retention and turnover. Would you see greater retention of staff in regional firms versus cities? Absolutely. Why Absolutely. do you think that is? Because I think that the people that, uh, uh, you know, what, what, what tends to happen is um, the, if you're, if if you're a young person, you're in a regional location, um, you often feel that you just don't have the opportunities that you have in a capital city. So we get a lot of accounting professionals coming from, you know, graduates coming from the regional areas. They come to the city. They come to the big smoke. They come to the big smoke. They'll they'll get, you know, a few years experience under under their belt and then they'll long long for the quieter life and they want to go back home. And the clean air. Especially if they're no tolls, no tolls, no traffic jams. No traffic. Um, if you want that work-life balance, you want to have, bring up a family, then being in a regional community is a fantastic place to be. So, um, so uh, once the decision is made to go back to a regional location, then it tends to sort of, they tend to stay in that regional location for a very long time. And the firm's... Um, the firms in the in the regional locations uh, do retain staff, in my opinion, having seen both city practices and regional practices. I think the retention is much higher in a regional practice than it is in a city practice. Do you think it's fair to say that regional practitioners need to be generalists, not specialists? Absolutely. They've got well, to be... Just the things that we've talked about just in primary production. There's obviously a need for specialisation for some of those um, unique uh, parts of primary production, but you're also dealing with all of the normal SME market that any accounting practice deals with. And the commercial and banking and, and finance and bank- issues yep. on top of that. Correct, correct. So they need to be a jack of all trades. Yeah, which again can be appealing to somebody that likes a variety of work, then not only is a, a, is a job in a regional practice going to give you work-life balance, but it's going to be stimulating as well. You're going to be dealing with a whole range of different issues across a whole range of industries, and um, and I think the work is very stimulating. Look, it's a generalisation, but I've always thought you probably got access to a greater or broader range of issues in a smaller firm Absolutely. than you did then being you slotted into a hole in a bigger firm. That's correct. Mm. Yeah, correct. CPD, so professional development. So this is an area we consistently get feedback that 
the accounting profession in regional areas wants access to more CPD. There's just, not enough of it. Logistics. If I live five hours from a capital city, and that's probably being generous in some of these cases, mm. then I'm not going to travel for 10 plus hours, which would generally necessitate some overnight accommodation, accommodation on costs. the cost associated with yep. that for a two-hour training, two training session. Does not make financial sense. Yeah. And there's been criticism for many years of the professional bodies, uh, whether fair or not, uh, as to their provision of services and availability of in events the regional areas. in the regions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. The quality and regularity of regional events. We often see either the professional bodies or even some other organisation that does a roadshow. Mm. Um, they're typically year-end. In fact, you're the, the queen of the roadshows for oh, yes. CPA Australia. <laughs> and how many of these would you do in a typical season? Um, just in Queensland, I would do eight to ten. Yeah, and these are run nationally, of course. So um, they are there, but that's once a year there's a year-end tax wrap. That's right. Um, throughout the rest of the year, there may not be the frequency of those events. Of, yeah, absolutely. And for some people, that could be their dose of tax for the year. So, in light of that, how do people get up to date? What are their options for making sure their skills are maintained? There's obviously online, so that is uh, one one means. Um, a lot of uh, feedback that I do get from regional uh, accountants is that they've, you know, they've tried online. It's it's not as uh, it's not as interactive. It's not as it never um, replaces face to face. It never replaces face to face. The dynamic of being able to engage with the presenter and having that one on one dialogue with a room of with a, yeah others in, with you Correct. obviously. Correct. So so in 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 some instances, if you are a regional accounting firm with five staff, then perhaps. I mean, you're in a regional centre. You know everybody else. Perhaps it's worthwhile to come together. With Share another resources. firm, with another couple of firms, to then have somebody come to you and have the economies of scale. Now, clearly, face-to-face -face training is more expensive. Reality is, it's more expensive than online training. Um, but if you have a few firms that can come together to share the cost, it becomes cost effective. It becomes manageable. Look, the groups that I see three times a year in regional New South Wales, uh, these will be groups that it's not. <laughs> necessarily affordable or, or logistically possible for me to go to these That's areas right. every month. Every month. But certainly three, four times mm. a year, I can travel up there. That's right. And then we have a full day training. Now, it does mean it's a very concentrated, intense day, um, but you get to cover everything in one hit. Exactly. And then we come back four or five months later and we do it all and again. And do it all again. That's yeah. right. That's right. So online products, we've talked about the webinars, but of course what we're offering here at Tax Banter, there's the Banter blog. So people can read that read, free online. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm probably preaching to the converter, but if you're listening to this podcast, you're already listening to Taxiac. Um, but for those that aren't, this is another way people can keep up to date. Correct. Another issue, internet connectivity. Mm. Now, these days, we all assume everyone's doing everything on the internet, but there is still a proportion of businesses, and through my dealings with the STP consultation, uh, we've certainly come to understand the extent to which smaller businesses in particular may not be computerised. Mm. They're still running manual or manual, yeah, payrolls systems. Yep. yep. So increasingly, we've got tax obligations that have to be complied with, but they're forcing us into a digital space. Mm. And for example, STP mm. is, of course, a classic example of this, if I can call STP classic, because it's only just come in. <laughs> not sure those two words belong in the one sentence. But a prime example of where there is no alternative to report 
STP other than through a digitally Digital. enabled STP solution. Yes. But if we think about others, activity statements via a portal, MyGov, mm. which is the way that many can lodge their individual tax, tax returns. returns. Now, they're not using agents if they're using MyGov, but MyGov is a place for other information to be accessed. Mm. So increasingly, we're seeing the use of these digital spaces. And for those in digitally challenged areas, NBN isn't 100% across the country yet. That's correct, yeah. It's challenging it's not, for some. Yeah, that's right, that's right. So, I mean, I suppose their options are um, if there's intermittent or no internet communication, then they need to place themselves in a location where there is internet uh, a capability. Um, and, uh, and so what I have found, uh, certainly a, a regional Queensland where they don't have NBN and where you, you do have, uh, regardless of whether they've got NBN or not, some of the you know older generation farmers that won't, they don't even have a computer. So they will actually do some of their internet banking and everything else that they need to do across the internet with, with their agents. I was reading recently about the NBN rollout and if I think back to the original figures being quoted by the then Rudd government, they were quoting figures of 100 megabits per second. And wonderful, amazing speed. We're on sort of four or five megabits with dial-up. Um, maybe ASL would get you to 10 if you're lucky. Mm. But what's been the reality is that they didn't factor in Netflix. So it's been called the Netflix factor. Mm. And because so many households these days have these streaming services in their homes, it's sucking all the bandwidth. All Yes, the bandwidth out of these um, these lines. So basically, if you can get 25, you're doing well. And so you may have NBN, but it may not be performing certainly at the speed that was being was predicted. Being, yeah. And so if you now look at most of the providers, they're saying, oh, yes, we can, um, you know, you might be lucky to get that, but, you know, basically we're saying 25 is, is pretty good. So we've had to recalibrate our expectations of what the connectivity was going to be. And I can just see greater issues as is, the technology continues to evolve, there's going to be even greater reliance on having a reliable internet connection. Mm, absolutely. Cloud solutions. This mm. is a new space. Now, on one hand, you're going to be incredibly challenged if you haven't got connectivity. But on the other, isn't this a fantastic way to bring together remote areas? Absolutely. Absolutely. I so agree. instead of driving five or ten hours to get to, to your accountant, you can now share the same can... file. Correct. Correct. And Skype is, you know, if you're, if you're, um, or Zoom is another alternative yeah, I hear. Yeah. Yep. So you can, you can have, um, you can have meetings online where you're eyeballing each other, where you're actually communicating face to face, albeit over. So you don't need to spend the day travelling. You don't need to spend the day travelling anymore. Do you think there's greater reliance on agents where businesses do have limited connectivity? Absolutely. Yeah. Without a doubt. I Regional areas, often the accountants involved in payroll, as I say, internet banking, you know, just all of those uh, online things that that, uh, that we take for granted. Um, if if uh, a business is not capable of doing them, then they'll, you know, sit in the agent's office and use the facilities for, you know, a couple of hours to just get on top of what they need to do. So in regional townships, there would be... An interesting conundrum going on. You've got less choice of agents. So on one hand, 
if you're really good at what you do, word will spread. Mm. But if you're also not good at what you do... (laughs) Word will spread. (laughs) I'm thinking dodgy type accountants. Um, And small town syndrome. Everybody knows everyone. And I've heard of situations where they may practice in town, but they live in another town just to provide a bit of separation. Correct. So what do you see out there when when this is going on? Because, yeah, you could be in your your favour or not, depending on the circumstance. Yeah, look, again, it's... um, I think it's fairly unique... Uh, it certainly doesn't region, happen in capital cities, not to the same extent. Not to the same extent. And I think if you live in a regional centre, then you are known to everybody. You are certainly, you know, uh, uh, we are the trusted advisor of many of our clients. Um, and it becomes critical that uh, accountants in regional areas um, do perform that role. So, they you know, the, the necessity to maintain confidentiality is just incredible, obviously. Um, but there's also the opportunity to develop long-term relationships with clients. Uh, many accountants have had the same client from the time they were a graduate accountant to the time they're a partner in a firm. So it's generational. And it's generational and family businesses. One of my clients that I train up in Rockhampton the son has taken over from the father and you know these these relationships have been going for as you say generations another issue that comes to mind regarding regional australia is the ato audit of the company bechtel now this from my understanding is a, a mining business near gladstone correct and thousands of employees were overclaiming work-related expenses correct the ATO conducted some audits, they made some corrections and said, you know, come forward, and then they released fact sheets. It's not often a taxpayer gets their own ATO fact sheet. That's right. And they were saying, look, we still think there are some of you who have overclaimed. So this is an example where a regional area can result in a concentration of a lot of taxpayers with one agent. That's right. That's exactly right. And um, and, and the ATO will recognise patterns uh, and act accordingly. And this could be a systemic issue within a practice as opposed to individual taxpayers making independent decisions. Correct, correct. And one of the issues I think that faces regional accountants is if there are only a few accountants in a in a in a town and you've got competition from somebody who's prepared to claim more or undercut you in, in or fees, undercut or, you claim in fees more. or claim more uh, in uh, work related deductions for their clients. Or they put a sign up in their window saying guaranteed tax refunds. Mm-hmm. Makes it difficult. Makes it difficult for the accountants that are trying to comply with the law, and um, ultimately they're doing the best for their client because, as Bechtel shows us, it, these things do get identified by the ATO, and the ATO will step in and and uh, and and tell taxpayers what they can and cannot claim. Indeed, and I think there are lessons to be learned from Bechtel. Absolutely. Mm. To finish on a positive note, because gosh, we've covered a lot of challenges and issues mm. that they need to face, but mm. what's good about being a regional practitioner? How can we attract people to this and, and why would you become one? Predominantly, I think, work-life balance, um, long-term relationships with clients and feeling like you're part of a community. I think that those are some of the, not to mention, no tolls. That's always less, a good thing. Yeah, less traffic. <laughs> So we might put up with some dodgy mobile reception, but at mm. least we haven't got the, the traffic jams. That's right. Long-term relationships, very important? Very important. Yeah, very important because I think more so in regional centres than capital cities, you are seen to be the trusted advisor and that relationship is really important and has real longevity if you look after it. Variety of work? 
Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. So you've got proper big space and backyards and um, kids can ride their bikes. and. That's right, that's right. It's more of a country upbringing for kids. And look, I don't mean to be at all disparaging against any of our city-based clients, but gee, you can't go past country hospitality. That's right. It's, yeah. yeah, it's always very welcoming and, and they're so grateful that we go out there and see them. Yeah. So I always I have enjoy heard, I have heard stories of uh, accountants being, um, you know, delivered eggs on a weekly basis from their clients' chickens. And, you know, just, yeah, right. something very yum. Or here's very, a baked homemade cake. Yes, yes. Yeah. Something very wholesome and, and, and very relaxed about country areas and regional Australia. Look, Leanne, thank you for coming in. It's been a great walk through a lot of issues that are confronting our regional clients and I'm interested to hear your insights, so thank you. Thank you for having me, Robin. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Taxiac. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media or let us know what you think or suggest future guests or topics, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time.